Welcome back to the 216th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a business owner in Oakland who actually got charged a fee to have the cops come and check everything out, a article talking about the Never Nikki uh, movement and uh, Mr. Paul, a.k.a. Rand Paul's opinions on it, and a really interesting one talking about coded language with women on different social medias. And, of course, we're going to end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, in communities nowadays, there's been pushback and there's been multiple experiments with actually taking some important dollars out of different policing programs. And I just want to know where you stand on it. And this doesn't necessarily have exactly a one-to-one correlation with what's going on in our first article, but I'm curious where people you know, live and if they've had different experiences. Maybe they live in an area where they actually took some funds out of cru- crucial programs and things got better and vice versa. I want to know everybody's opinion down there in the comment section. So let's jump into our first article, which comes from the Washington Examiner. Oakland now charging businesses for getting robbed. So when I first read that headline, I was like, whoa, 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 okay, let's let's slow down here. I'm pretty sure they're not actually charging them to get robbed. Like, oh, okay, you have a unsecure business. You know, your business is easy to rob, therefore we're going to charge you money. And I was right. That That's not what they're saying here. It was actually a fee that came along with the police department coming and helping and repairing some of the damages. And I'm, I'm sort of two ways. One, yes, if the police department comes and dedicates hours, man hours, and materials to fixing something, there's probably an invoice that comes along with that. But also, the common decency to not hit somebody while they're down, you know, right after they got robbed. I think that is another really important thing that needs to be talked about here. And the argument could be made that if the police were ever more present and they were actually in the area where this sort of thing is happening, then that robbery might not have happened. So you could say that it would be their responsibility to secure the area and make sure that the crime does not get out of hand and people don't have the perception that they can just rob anybody. So there are multiple facets to this article and this conversation that I think need to be delved into. But... I am not the only person talking about it. Obviously, this article is. So let's jump into a quote from the first section. It it is literally the definition of kicking someone when they are down. Andres Gilead Flores, owner of the Snail Bar in Oakland, California, told city council candidate Chris Moore after Oakland police gave Flores an invoice for responding to a call that his store had been robbed. They came one hour after we got robbed, Flores explained, quote, and after one hour we get robbed, they walk through and they put a piece of wood on with duct tape. This thing cost me thousands of dollars to fix already, Flores continued, quote, and them thinking that we have enough money on top of that to give them some more for coming through and checking out what happened seems so irrational. So there's multiple things going on here. I think you could probably make a really strong argument 
that the cops should not have charged this gentleman any money. And this is simply because their salaries, for the most part, are already coming from tax dollars within that area. Now, they may be appropriated a little bit differently. It may come from you know individual taxes rather than business taxes, because business taxes may go towards ensuring certain infrastructure, like electricity is in place and other sewage and things like that to make sure the operating of the business is actually functional or maybe advertising for the area in general to bring in more tourists so those businesses can get money. Sure, but at the end of the day, the money for the cop's salary is coming out of the local community. So then on top of that, to send somebody an invoice, now yes, I, like I said earlier, I do understand the idea that if they're going out of the way and they're deriving or they are diverting their attention from other issues that could be going on in the community in order to help someone who was just robbed, sure, you could make an argument that, yeah, you got to pay up for that. I mean, you're taking money away from other citizens who may need our attention. But at the end of the day, that's different than calling them in and having them do something that's useless, you know, basically having it as a repercussion for wasting the police time versus having them come and actually look through what happened. Maybe you have security information or just security camera footage that you need to provide to them for the investigation. Maybe you have descriptions of the people. Why are you getting charged for something like this? And it really makes the incentive process re seem really wrong, which is if you are a business, or let's just say this was even on a personal level, which it's not, but I want to make it a personal level because it's easier for people to identify with that. Say you're in a, pers a person and there's a noise complaint in the house next to you and you call the police because you want them to quiet down. You want to make sure that you can actually go to sleep, nothing rowdy happens, so on and so forth. And then they come, they check it out, they make sure that the noise goes away, they tell the people, hey, can you calm down, so on and so forth. And they walk over to your door and like, okay, hey, sir, we resolved your noise complaint. Uh, here's our $100 fee. It's like they're a private security team that is saying, okay, hey, we did our job. What's our hourly rate? Okay, give us that money. No, it is their job to protect the safety of everybody within a given community. That is exactly, like I said earlier, that is exactly what our tax dollars go to when it comes to the police, you know, firemen and things of this nature. So <laughs> when you set up this, inv this perverse incentive, which is, okay, now they can actually charge more on top of that, then you're going to actually dissuade people from reporting certain incidents and calling the police to come help them or even just, you know, analyze what's going on. Because from the way this guy, uh, Mr. Flores, is making it sound is they just came and checked things out and then they put something up, which I'm not saying putting anything up or repairing the damages is necessarily within the purview of the police. But if those are the only two things you're doing and you're charging for that one thing, you could at least do that out of the kindness of your heart. Come on now. And now you might have other people hearing the story like, oh, shoot, Oakland police are they're invoicing, you know, places that get robbed. Now, I'm not going to call and report it. Like, oh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll call in and I'll tell them, but I'm not going to tell them to come down. And guess what that says to the people who just robbed you? I mean, maybe they're staking it out. Maybe they're seeing if you call in the police and there's a response. They're going to say, oh, hey, they didn't call the police. They don't want to call the police for some reason. We can actually rob this place again without having to worry about it, even if they put in new security measures. It just feels like a very, very perverse system. And maybe these Oakland police officers are, are really crunched for money. Maybe there's a reform in the way that these officers have to do things, which is if their hours are 
used by taxpayers in a particular way, and they've had a restriction on tax dollars that has gone to them directly. They have to use indirect methods in order to get a little bit of extra cash and make sure that they're getting paid for their time. And I think that's a very perverse incentive structure. I don't think that we should have anything structured that way whatsoever. How are we going to encourage businesses to come into any community if the police are not there being a reliable force to protect the businesses and the other citizens that are attending those businesses? Guess what? Mr. Flores here, he's going to be hesitant to call more police because he doesn't want to get invoiced. We've already gone through that logic. But guess what that also means? Other people may be hesitant to go to his place because they're like, okay, well, maybe people realize that the police aren't going to come. Or maybe it's simply the fact that police will not come to that location. So customers are like, well, if anything does happen, then I don't want to be here because they're not going to respond very fast to what's going on. Or if Mr. Flores isn't going to rely on them, he's going to try to take matters into his own hands, which could you know, hurt innocent bystanders around him, especially at a bar, which could possibly be crowded. So how do we create a stable environment where it's allowing companies to thrive, allowing different businesses to grow uh, investment, allowing investment into local communities, you know, wages going towards people who need them, who need the work, so on and so forth. How are we supposed to build up a community by bringing in money and dispersing it throughout, whether that's, you know, buying cups from the local glass making company, or if that's buying alcohol from the local distributor, like I said, paying wages to people who live in the community who work there, Uh, buying advertising from a local marketing company. How are you meant to to funnel these dollars that are supposed to come in and get them dispersed throughout the community if the community itself won't actually allow these businesses to thrive? It will actually punish them for doing what would be considered right. It is the right thing to call the police after you get robbed, after your place of work gets broken into. This is the correct thing to do. But when you don't have faith in the police because of small actions that they take, when you do not have faith in the system that is built up around not just this city in particular, but the entire nation, the system that we have is meant to protect the individual and their rights, and this includes businesses and so on and so forth. It is meant to keep all of these values sacred. Every institution of government that is proper and function protects these rights so that we can operate within the most amount of freedom in a civilized society. And when you start taking away that civilized society part, it's really hard for us to live at our most free and enjoy the most prosperous type of society when we don't have those enforcers that are coming in and saying, okay, no, this is, this is too far. This is you violating somebody else's rights. This is you violating somebody else's property. So when you can't even have faith for the police, this is the sort of thing you're going to start seeing. You're going to start seeing less investment in areas that have less of a police presence. And then there's going to be questions, well, wait, why aren't people coming here? Why aren't people investing in this area? And half the time it will be blamed on other systemic issues when it really is just a business saying, okay, you know, it's, it's great. This business, this area has a lot of business to be had. 
But also, if we're going to get broken into four times, or even just three times, but then we get billed each time that we get broken into, the police aren't going to do their job to the best of their ability. They're not going to protect our property. Those losses are actually going to offset any of the business or the profit that we can get from this market that we're trying to penetrate. So it's a simple cost-benefit analysis. And I understand there are more factors than that, but it really is that simple, in my opinion. Like, if you're going to weigh all these different factors, uh, cost-benefit makes up like 80% of the equation, and the other 20% is the other emotional uh, factors that come along with anything during our lives, or the, uh, I would say, marginal factors. So to pretend as though, you know, getting police out of these, any environment where we want things to prosper and thrive and having this perverse system, and I'm going to say it again, this is the third time, this perverse incentive structure where the cops are not only not doing their best to protect their citizens, but also charging their citizens for a mediocre job. And let's be clear, I'm not saying these officers are terrible people. They could just be doing their job. They could have they could have in their brain that they just showed up an hour after the incident. Like they couldn't stop it in the middle of it, so they're not going to rush over there. But then instead of having a heart and having empathy and understanding that somebody else's private property was violated, and then they're going to have a whole bunch of other costs on top of anything else that could happen in the next few months. I mean, the normal operating business costs. Now you stack one more thing on top of them and you perpetuate that distrust that exists within that community. So I thought it was a really interesting article. I thought it was hyperbole at first, but then I read into it a little bit further, and it was definitely worth the time. So let's jump to our second article, which also comes from the Washington Examiner. And I I picked these out. I read these over the course of a few different days, but I picked these out because I really thought they were important ones. And this one is headlined, An Exclusive Interview with Rand Paul About the Never Nikki Movement. So the Never Nikki movement is something I heard about from a libertarian podcast that I watched and also a progressive podcast that I listened to. And I heard the words Never Nikki. I was like, whoa, okay, I haven't heard this before. It kind of resonated with me because Nikki Haley is definitely not my cup of tea. Then again, I think almost all the candidates this time were not my cup of tea. But Nikki Haley is definitely not my cup of tea. And pretending that she's a actual good thing for the... Republican side of the aisle, I I think it's honestly a a joke when it comes to trying to keep up with this shift in the side of the Republican aisle towards MAGA. And when people say, well, okay, she she has a little bit of that MAGA stuff, but she is kind of a return to normalcy on the Republican side. I'm like, sure, but is a return to normalcy actually what we wanted? Did our generation, Gen Z, and this goes for any movement on either side of the aisle, did they want to return to normalcy like Biden or like Haley? Or did they want someone like Trump and Bernie, a little bit more populist, a little bit more on the margins? Did they want something that's not same old, same old? And this is just the Republican response to the Democrats putting forth Joe Biden, actually getting him in the office of like, okay, maybe we can get our uh, corporatist Nikki Haley back into office. And that's why you see someone like Rand Paul coming out and making comments against her. Like, Rand Paul, he runs in some of the, you know, corporate circles, but he is not bought and paid for by the corporation. And let's be clear, I'm not trying to insinuate that Haley is directly bought and paid for by the corporations. What I'm saying is Rand Paul does not directly buy into their line of thinking like some politicians do. So when you see something like this coming out from him, you know where he's going to come from for the most part. But his thoughts on this one were elucidating for someone who had never heard about the... Uh, never Nikki movement. 
Quote, Senator Rand Paul was arguably always been ahead of the curve. He was one of the first to speak out about manip manipulated scientific data regarding the eff efficacy of masks. He bravely challenged Dr. Anthony Fauci and exposed a lot of information about him that damaged Fauci's credibility. And shortly before two Republican primary presidential candidates suspended their campaigns, Paul rose once again to express concern over the candidacy of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. So they're laying out, okay, hey, Paul, he's kind of ahead of the curve, whether that's because he's in the populist strain, he's listening to the heart of the people, or he's just sticking to his uh, convictions and trying to move past the established, uh, how should I put it, control structures in both parties throughout the early 2000s. Eh, I'll leave that one up to you. Quote, earlier this month before the Iowa caucus, Paul sent shockwaves through the political world by posting a video on X, formerly Twitter. The senator professed his adamant opposition to Haley's campaign. He provided his reasons for the disapproval and announced the creation of the, quote, Never Nikki campaign. In this exclusive interview with Senator Paul, he explained his decision to publicly declare his opposition to Haley. And what I love about this is we have a whole bunch of endorsements coming out of absolutely nowhere. Uh, we have, you know, Buddha, well, I was going to say Buttigieg supporting Joe Biden, but he's in his administration. So, of course, he's going to support him. But you have people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren saying, oh, if Biden's the nominee for the, the party, and he is, he's our president, then we'll support him. DeSantis is now just supporting Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy supporting Trump, Scott supporting Trump. You see all these endorsements, and very seldom, except for maybe a Chris Christie saying, hey, we are, we're never, I can't, I can't allow, I cannot have another Trump presidency, you don't really see people denouncing and saying, no, I will never have you on the ticket. And this is normally because of the, the party ideology. When you have someone who is a part of your party, party, there's commentators who keep saying that these parties are vehicles to victory. And sometimes you have to give up your pure ideals in order to actually win and even have a voice at the table. You know, if Rand Paul really wants to be taken seriously and have some of his points listened to, well, the Democrats aren't going to listen to him anyway, for the most part. You know, in a, a system that would be actually bipartisan, he would, but nowadays it's really split, and it always has been pretty darn split, and those bipartisan moments are pretty rare. But nowadays, in order to really make sure your voice gets heard, you have to at least get your party in the door. You have to get their foot jammed in there. So then, from that point on, the conversation is controlled and dictated by that one side of the aisle, and then the discourse happens in between the members of that side of the aisle. So the idea would be, okay, hey, I'm going to fall behind the Republican here so we can at least get into power, and then we can frame the discussion, and I can kind of influence things from the inside. But Rand Paul is here like, okay, you know, I do want a Republican to win, but I don't care what you say. It is not going to be Nikki Haley. Quote, one of Paul's concerns about Haley is her previous comments regarding foreign policy. Paul cited Haley's hawkish statements regarding military conflicts and her desire to spend billions of dollars in taxpayer money on foreign aid. It's a sentiment that many Republican voters have also expressed as voters have grown tired of endless wars and endless funding in foreign countries. So, yeah, he's not really a big spender anyway. So then he's also not a war person. So when you combine spending and you 
combined war, uh, this is going to be one of Rand Paul's cream of the crop issues, just like COVID was there for a little bit. He's literally taken that butter out of the container and he is spreading it over his toast as he's lambasting her for this one. Quote, I think the idea that we would have a nominee who is saying things like, we don't need a Department of Defense. We need a Department of Offense. And saying she is a, quote, huge fan of UN policies and a huge fan of foreign aid. These are the sort of opposite to what most libertarian conservatives believe, Paul said, which is what he categorizes himself as, obviously. He, he and his father are kind of lifted up in libertarian circles. Quote, and I think it's important that people know, and I want people who follow me and follow the work I do in Congress to know, that this is not somebody I support and that people need to look long and hard at her record and the, thing she's, the things she's been saying. So this is one thing where... The, the politics aspect of it for me don't really, on one particular issue, the politics, I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, I don't care if you justify a war for spreading democracy, or you say it's for the kindness of relieving certain groups uh, that are being oppressed in other nations. I think you can pull on my heartstrings like that, you can appeal to my want for everybody to have equal treatment underneath their government and throughout the world, so on and so forth. You can pull on those heartstrings, but no matter what language you use to justify a war, I always feel as though we need to push back and have a serious conversation about that. Don't get me wrong. The argument that it is in our nation's interest to do something like that, to be involved, to support allies, to help in certain wars, that is not lost on me. And my pragmatic side can take a step in and say, okay, hey, I'll listen to your argument. But overall, when the words of war are uttered, it just it causes me to pause. And I think it causes a lot of people in our generation to take pause. One, because we'll probably be the people that are called up into arms and this is this is a lot of people i mean i know there are iq exclusions um i don't think that i'm that that low but maybe maybe i am maybe i am that low and i i wouldn't actually uh, pass some of the the military tests but probably 75 percent of our generation could pass the iq test now would 75 percent of our generation pass the iq and fitness test i don't know about that but at the end of the day, I still think it would be more than 40% of our generation, and these people could be directly called up. So when you talk about going to war and not necessarily using American troops, but at least being a part of the war, in which then if you know we do have some frontline people who are helping out, who are helping train some of these other soldiers and they get hurt, what what's the end game? Are we going to justify going forward and saying, okay, well, hey, no, they, they took some of our American lives there. I mean, we were risking them by putting them on that front line there, but this is unacceptable. They took American lives. We have to respond, and we go into war. Our generation sits here like, okay, great. That, that's great that you want to go to war, but, I mean, you 50-pluses aren't going to be directly in the war. Maybe you're going to feel some repercussions at home if this is a long prolonged war that's affecting the economy and so on and so forth, or we have a economic hard time, sure, but you're not going to be right there on the front line sacrificing your life for your nation. And I'm sure there are many people, including myself, if it, if it really came down to it, I'm sure there are plenty of us who would genuinely be willing to put our life on the line for our nation. But that's not something you can take lightly and you can just throw around. And we have to genuinely take time to sit, think about is this a worthy cause? Is protecting people like the Taiwanese, a sovereign nation from China, a worthy cause for us to give up our lives as Americans? 
Probably not. Now, if we were attacked by Canada, very unlikely, but if we were attacked by Canada and we're protecting our own sovereignty, I'm sure there are millions of Americans who are in the lower age brackets who would be willing to stand up and fight for their nation. But these are things that can't be thrown around so lightly. And this strongman foreign policy, I understand the pragmatic conclusions for it, but at the end of the day, the people that you are asking to potentially sacrifice their lives are going to be hesitant. And that's why you do see a strong anti nikki movement in some of the younger people, especially some of the younger people who consider themselves libertarians who haven't come down on either side yet. They haven't had enough experience or done enough uh, real life activity or even just read enough to really have developed where they stand on certain things, or they're just truly libertarian because of the age that we grew up in. You're asking a lot. So when rhetoric like Nikki Haley's comes out there, don't be surprised when there's pushback. And then when Rand Paul says things like this, People go, yeah, rah, 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 let's go, Rand. Now, let's be clear, I'm not uh, out there at any of his rallies, even though I, I do live in Kentucky. I am not out there at any of his rallies going rah, 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 rah yay, Rand. But I, I think he makes a good point here. And I think the Never Nikki movement is, once again, another interesting point versus the normal, ah, okay, Republicans endorse and not very much naysaying if you don't like somebody. But now there's an outright, very loud public internet campaign saying, no, Nikki, you are not going to get our support. And I think it will be a little bit more wide-reaching than people actually realize, especially as time goes on. And Nikki has more time to be criticized as the only other actual opponent to Trump, even though she has been a little bit. Now that DeSantis is fully out and really is just her and Donald Trump, all the spotlight's going to be focused on her. You're not going to see the process stories about DeSantis anymore. Can he make it? No, it's going to be truly her and Trump. So she's going to get a lot of love from some people, but also a lot of hate. And I think this Never Nikki movement will continue to grow. All right, so our last article comes from Alternet. How women influencers are using coded language to spread far-right ideology on social media. So, uh... This one was a really interesting one, and it is a pretty short article because it's actually promoting a podcast that was done. But I'm going to read the first paragraph, and we can discuss it a little bit more. Quote, when you think about the far right, you probably picture groups of young white men carrying images of swastikas or torches like those seen at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. But the face of the far right is changing, at least on social media. In this episode of Conversation Weekly, the podcast, we hear about new research into a cohort of women influencers peddling far right ideology on mainstream platforms such as Instagram and on YouTube. And it goes on to talk about a doctoral student who has uh, this research project that they're doing. She actually is in the Netherlands studying, I believe. And what I thought was interesting here is you have seen a evolution of the, the trad wives or the more conservative women getting out there and talking about their experiences. And, you know, the left has been really present on TikTok and all these other social medias for a while. Now the conservative women are coming out. They're realizing that there's a market here for them as well. And they're putting their opinion out there. The thing I was really interested in is when they were saying far right, I was like, whoa, okay. I know a lot of women creators who I've, I've watched in the past. I've seen brief content, and some of them have really strong viewpoints. Some of them are pretty darn moderate, if not libertarian, and then there are just the, the normie Republicans. So when I heard the conversation far right, I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, what, what's going on here? I didn't know this, this whole far right kind of thing was going on, these conversions to radicalism. And then when I was listening to the podcast, it opened up 
with a few different clips of women, and I heard Lauren Chen in there. And for those of you who don't know Lauren Chen, she used to be on The Blaze, I think, for a while there. She courted with possibly going to Stephen Crowder's network, but now she's on her own. And I'll tell you now, when I hear them, the author or the speakers in the podcast, characterize most of these women as far right, I was like, Lauren Chen is not far right. Like, she, she's pretty moderate, conservative, uh, you know, traditional in a lot of ways. She is not far right. And there were clips of women in there saying some some pretty funky stuff, too. So I'm not saying they're not talking about some women who actually are really out there. But when they started talking, I was like, oh, okay, one, this is also a British author, so it's far right from the British perspective. But also, a lot of these women directly rail against feminism. And that's what they were using to categorize them as far right, saying, oh, feminism is a bad thing overall. And I've listened to some of these monologues from these women and feminism in its first and maybe even second waves, where we were, they were truly pushing for equal status of men and women, that's not what they're disagreeing with. They're disagreeing with the third and fourth wave, where they're talking about, one, that women need to be completely independent of men, where they don't need to be dealing with them at all, because they're talking about these traditional family values, and also where women have been oppressed by men for generations, so they have to get their payback in some way, shape, or form. And that's a very simplistic, generalistic way of describing it, but if I'm talking about what they're pushing back, pu- pushing back against in these different waves of feminism, that's mainly it. They're not saying that oh, we need to go back to the place where women women are lesser than men, at least in a legal sense, maybe in a, a spiritual sense. They're saying we need to go back to a place where uh, we respect our our man and expect him to lead. It's not actually saying that we're less than, but we're going to come underneath him and trust him on certain things, and then he's going to trust us on other issues. So there's actually a hierarchical difference depending on what category you're talking about. A lot of women in these different trad wife traditions talk about this, and it doesn't seem very far right to me. Then again, I, I guess maybe I have a few more conservative leanings than other people, so maybe I'm just not seeing the whole picture. But it was really interesting, and I feel like it was a mischaracterization, honestly. But it's a really interesting podcast. I listened to it while I was running, and it provided some good brain because I was in a I was in a new city when I was running, and I was like, okay, well, I read this article this morning. I really want to listen to what they're saying, so I'm going to queue it up. And it, it provided some good brain food to dissect what they were saying, actually look at some of their valid claims about uh, different people who I had never heard from before, that their commentary was a little bit out there, the genuine pushback against feminism in general, and then how these women were doing it. So it was a pretty interesting podcast. I would suggest it. But before you go and listen to that, let me finish up with our daily delight. And this one comes from Buzz60. This pet pooch helps toddler rise from fall. So, you know, sometimes you and your pet and your little daughter, little son, they go on, you go on a little hike, a little run outside, and your kid's getting really tired, and they're just like, oh, mom, I want to go to bed. Well, this is why you have dogs, because the dog steps in and saves everything. Quote, mom, Liu captured the sweet moment when a pet pooch helped a toddler get back up after she fell over on a walk. And they go on to describe what's going on. It's a really short, like, one-minute video, pretty darn cute. And if you want to see the video or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. 
With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.